There is a list of people who are missing in the state of West Virginia, with 143 active missing person cases open. This isn't even touching on all the numerous additional cases all across the Appalachian region. Crime in the Coalfields touched on each name, each person, who has an active missing persons case and open in our local area. 24 of them are in the viewing area of our Station 59 News. One of them is today's focus. You may remember the case of Sharice Gwynn Stevens. We mentioned her name in a previous episode, bringing attention to all of those missing near you. Tonight, her disappearance and declared homicide get a second, deeper look. Cherise, whose first name was actually Angela, went by her middle name with everyone else who knew her. She was reportedly last seen on October 1st of 1993, when she dropped her husband Norman off at work. She reportedly dropped her husband off at work in the 200 block of George Street in the Industrial Park area of Beckley during the day. Her husband refused to take a lie detector test in relation to this case. At the time, Cherise was driving her 1993 white Dodge Daytona, which was eventually located a month later in a local parking lot. When Cherise failed to pick Norman up at the end of the day, he went home alone, claiming that he assumed that she had just left. There is no official evidence supporting that she dropped Norman off, and no evidence that he even went to work that day. Sharice was not declared missing until later in October when her husband Norman filed for divorce. On May 6, 2014, Sharice was declared legally dead and her case officially became a homicide investigation. Sharice's family has a public Facebook group where her brother shares frequent updates on the investigation. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Crime in the Coalfields. I'm Izzy Post. And I'm Harper Edge. Crime in the Coalfields is a podcast brought to you by 59 News that explores the crimes, killers, cryptids, and notorious cold cases of the Mountain State and beyond. Tonight is an episode revisiting one of the many names on the list of missing in the Mountain State. In this episode, we will cover the specific details of the disappearance and the few options for Therese Gwynn Stevens' fate. We also hear what the family is doing in their continuing search for answers. This episode of Crime in the Coalfields is an exclusive podcast experience sponsored exclusively by Rose and Quessenberry Funeral Chapels. How would you like to relieve the emotional and financial burden off of those you love, express your own wishes, and avoid conflicts among family members? Call Sandy Evans at Rose and Quessenberry today. Let's recap the case for anyone who does not remember or who hasn't listened to our overall episode on the missing persons of our area. Angela Sharice Gwen Stevens was last seen in Beckley on October 1st, 1993. She dropped her husband, Norman Stevens, off at work in the 200 block of George Street in the industrial park area of Beckley during the day. Her husband refused to take a lie detector test and divorced her a month after her disappearance. Foul play is suspected in the case, and Sharice says her friends called her 
was declared dead in 2014. These are all the details that we gave you when we initially covered this case. But there are deeper details to the story, and pieces that don't quite add up. For example, according to one source from 1997, the family didn't file the report until September 12th of 1994, the following year. The same source says that Stevens claimed that Cherise called him from an undisclosed, out-of-town location. Her friend Paula Hager spoke to Cherise hours before her disappearance at lunch. This is the last time anyone ever saw Cherise alive. According to Paula, quote, Cherise explained to me that she and Norman, her husband, had a big argument. She asked me if she could move in with me while they got things straightened out. I said, sure. That night, I got the phone call asking if I knew where she was, end quote. Charisse's husband maintains that he does not know where she is. He notified the family later in October, and when the missing persons report was filed, he told police he had been called by Charisse from an undisclosed location. She allegedly told him she was never coming back. We've said this before, Harper. It's not illegal to go missing. I was going to say that, yeah. We've talked about this in cases, both the overall missing persons case that we mentioned in this episode, as well as other isolated cases of missing persons we've talked about on the podcast. It isn't illegal to go missing. There's nothing like if she was found alive and well, the police wouldn't arrest her. They wouldn't do anything like that. They might not even let people know that she was found if she requested not to be disclosed. And so that presents two distinct possibilities right off the bat in this case, in this investigation. There is one possibility that she simply had a reason to disappear, and she used that reason and her means, and she just left. Like her husband says, like he claims. That's true. However, police have come forward and said foul play is suspected. Yes, the case has been officially labeled a homicide. You don't do that without reasonable evidence or reason to believe. Right. But that then brings up the question, is the reasonable evidence, is there suspicion of Norman Stevens, the husband, or is it something else? Because to my research and everything that I could glean, the police have not really delved very deeply into Norman. They have not gotten warrants or brought him in for questioning. He's never been uh, arrested. There's never been any sort of official movements of an investigation. They have investigated belongings of his and things surrounding the case. Fairly normal stuff for somebody related to a disappearance or, or a case of any sort, even a homicide. But nothing much deeper than that. And he's refused to lie detector test. And as we'll see a little bit later, it didn't even happen just once. It happened over the course of this investigation several times. He's refused to take tests. He just says, and entirely based on his word, we are to believe that his wife left. And then, and even with the evidence that they were having marital problems, and it's not just her friend who uh, claimed that. There were some other sources that pretty much verified that they didn't have the best relationship, that there were fights, there were problems. 
Teresa's family claims that Norman refused to cooperate with the investigation as well, and that he quickly cut off contact. He has also reportedly refused to ever submit to a polygraph test, as we just said, despite being one of the last few people to see Cherise alive. Norman has not ever been officially investigated as a suspect in her disappearance. A private investigator hired by Charisse's father alleges Norman did not work at all on the day Charisse was last seen. The investigator also believes the car she was driving was sold after her disappearance. This car also brings interesting wrinkles into this case. The 1993 white Dodge Daytona reappeared in the UPS parking lot, according to Stevens himself, on November 1st of 1993, one month after the date Stevens told police that he had last seen Cherise. He reported that someone had placed the keys over the sun visor. Most sources additionally report that Stevens did indeed sell the Daytona later that month. And this is where it gets fishy. It was already pretty fishy on Norman's end. Like, like he didn't have a great case before this. So what sticks out to me is a lot of the sudden changes that Norman did. Now, this is not accusing Norman of killing Charisse. This is, you know, that's up for police to investigate and, and decide. However... When you're going through a grief process, I'm going to, to look at this from a grief perspective. When someone disappears, when someone leaves your life, when someone dies, especially someone like a family member that you're married to, they tell you not to make any stark decisions for a year. Don't sell anything. Don't get rid of anything that could have significance. And it seems like he's doing a lot of that in a very short period of time. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there could be plenty of other things that we, we don't necessarily have as many details on, other possessions, other things like that. Uh, that Those are details that the police might know, but probably wouldn't release in an investigation like this. And, I don't know, and we, we don't have Norman to talk to as well. That would be something to hear his side of the story um, straight from the source, because all we have, this didn't happen very long ago, especially in comparison to some of the other cases we talk about here on the show, but Norman has his side of the story, and he has stuck to it. He stuck to it vehemently, and he's even refused to take lie detector tests, and sometimes you even get people who are guilty who will still submit to a test, and it's used as evidence against them. Something about this might just scream, this is a guy with pride who knows that he is right, that that he didn't do anything, that he wasn't involved, that his wife just disappeared. But I'm going to counter that and say, even if you were having marital problems, even if they were fighting day in and day out, even if those fights, you know, I'm, I'm speculating here, even if these fights got it so far as to become physical, when your wife goes missing, why would you sell the yeah. last thing she was seen in? less than three months later it is it is incredibly suspicious and most of his actions in other words are indeed incredibly suspicious and and the family even i think has room to be suspicious and has gone on record as being suspicious of norman as well so you know you definitely have these two angles uh, right off the bat is the classic well the husband had to have done it right 
um, especially, you know, if they were having marital problems, and maybe she did try to get away. And I think this part I was a little bit hazy on, and it's not confirmed details. This is mostly online speculation from people that I, I, I saw, but some people speculate that there was evidence that she did try to, quote, leave before, but that she came back. And so maybe there was something going on there, and maybe that was motivation enough for her to leave. And maybe she did leave, or maybe she tried to leave, and it resulted in, in a heat-of-the-moment decision as well. Maybe. The investigation remains open and fairly active. In March of 2010, police executed a search warrant on a vacant building owned by Norman's brother, Michael. There have been no follow-ups in the investigation or further leads. So it can be safely assumed that that search warrant was a dead end. Around the same time, another search was attempted at the Breckenridge Missionary Baptist Church, which had been under construction at the time of Sharice's disappearance. The family was particularly interested in searching an old septic tank on the property at their own expense. The church leaders initially refused, but they have since allowed the tank to be searched. At the time of her disappearance, the Breckenridge Missionary Baptist Church in Bolt was building an addition to their church. Now, Cherise and Norman did live in the area of Bolt, West Virginia. Cherise's older brother, Thomas Gwynn, believes that the septic tank under the church parking lot is where his family could find more clues about his sister's whereabouts from the day that she went missing. He mailed out thousands of flyers asking the church for permission to search the property. They even said that they would pay for the work themselves. The search was carried out on Monday, September 18, 2017, by contractors while West Virginia State Police were present. But Gwyn said the search did not answer questions about Teresa's disappearance. We've talked about the damage septic tanks can do to evidence before. Yes, with another very specific case where that did happen, and it was confirmed to have happened. Not to say this in a morbid fashion, but it's a good idea for a killer. You know, it's a great plan or backup plan. Throw them in a septic tank, especially one that's a being constructed that you know will be sealed up and not accessible for a while until official stuff can get underway, warrants can get done, stuff like that. But here in this case, we have the church finally submitted, and they went back and forth on this for a while. The church finally submitted, though. The police got involved. They were like, we'll help you investigate this lead if, if you, the family, think it's a lead. An example of, of the police being very supportive of something the families firmly believed in. And it turned up to be nothing, not a lead. And that's an answer in and of itself, but it's not a very good answer. No, it's not. And, and there's a lot of construction and demolition always ongoing. No matter where you are, whether it's here in the mountains or, or beyond, and that's always something that you have to take into account in any case like this. And despite the very real possibility that Cherise did simply disappear, like we talked about, both law enforcement and the family are cited as believing foul play is involved. The state police are heading the still-open investigation into Cherise and have explored many avenues after officially changing the case's designation to a homicide investigation. This includes their assistance in the investigation of the septic tank area. 
Thomas Gwynn says that the family asked for a search of the property for 12 years. Their suspicion was that Cherise may have been killed and that her body was hidden in the under-construction septic tank area. Quote, I don't believe she ran off, Thomas says. I believe somebody killed her, end quote. At the time of Cherise's disappearance in 1993, Breckenridge members were constructing an addition to the church and there was an open septic tank on the property. He said that during a 1997 search of the Stevens farm by cadaver dogs, the dogs hit on a spot, but no remains were discovered. Quote, it just kind of brought up the suspicion that Sharice's killer could have maybe put her in the septic tank at the church because at the time it was under construction. He said prior to the search, they may have moved her there. End quote. Even after leads have faltered in this investigation time and time again, Thomas says that he's dedicated to finding his sister, despite the fruitless church property search in particular. Quote, Our journey for the truth only gets more humbling as multitudes of friends and complete strangers show their tremendous support and prayers with true, heartfelt compassion. I feel that we have only scratched the surface. End quote. His late father, Thomas Gwynn Sr., had led the family's efforts to find Charisse before his death in 2008. He had asked Gwynn to continue searching for her. Quote, when I enter heaven, I'll know exactly what happened to her, Gwynn Sr. told his family prior to his death. This is something we've also seen before. Certain family members who were very active in an investigation into one of their family members and just seeing them not being able to get that resolution or her hearing about it is it's a sting for sure but to hear that he was assured at least that he would know is something and i think that this last bit and we touched on the septic tank for a moment there to specifically highlight that the family was active in this investigation is active in this investigation they have their ideas of what has happened and their leads they've always asked for the public's help and assistance in this case they've been forthcoming and open with people and i think that that's something that you see in these cases all the time it gives hope it's a it's a good thing to see that a family is still trying they're still motivated i did the math in my head harper and we're giving a little behind the scenes here. I'm going to break just for a second. Harper and I take turns picking cases and writing, and then the other one kind of reacts to what's happening. That's how we, we do this podcast. And Harper led this podcast in particular. So this quote, when I enter heaven, I'll know exactly what happened to her, is very powerful. Very powerful. And, and when you are dying, you look back on your life and you reflect and you say things like that. But this reminds me a lot of what we handled in the last episode with Alex Carter revisited in the sense that we're coming up on 30 years since Sharice Gwen has gone missing. I did the math in my head while we were doing this podcast, recording this. And you have a lot of time in 30 years to really think about what may have happened and come up with your story. And, and Alex Carter's father said the same thing. I, I know what happened to her. I just want it confirmed. And we're seeing that here in the sense of after 30 years, the outcome is pretty evident. And this is a family that just wants closure. And I think that that is exactly where we are in this case. Like so many of the cases we cover here on Crime in the Coalfields, it's just 
she's gone. What happened? Yeah. And the sad thing is that it's probably evident to the police, too. You can tell. They declared it a homicide investigation. They've got their pieces together. It's an example of where, and this is totally conjecture on my part, but it might be that the police just don't have the due process, the clues, the evidence that they could piece and pin together to actually say officially what happened. They might be able to file these couple pieces together and the musings of the detectives and and all this stuff together and they'll put it in a filing cabinet and they just can't close it. And that's something we have to accept sometimes in this type of podcast and in this type of discussion that sometimes cases can't legally be closed. And I'm not saying that as a way of giving up hope. In fact, I want to highlight that the family has not given up hope. And I want to encourage any friends and any family to continue that hope. A lot of the sources that I investigated mentioned the Facebook page for Cherise Quinn Stevens. Uh, When I did the missing persons episode and did some of the research on some of those people, I did Cherise Quinn Stevens as well. And it was the, the same thing. You see, she had a a website dedicated as well that the family used to collate information and sources together and have people ask questions and then ask questions to the public. And when I was putting this together, I noticed that the website is down, whether that's due to it just timing out uh, naturally as happens sometimes on the internet or whether it was pulled down. I just want to say we shouldn't give up hope. Circling back to the beginning, it's not illegal for someone to go missing. However, like you just said, the family has not given up hope and has pushed for so long. And it's not illegal to go missing, but when you're in a scenario like that, where I'm just going to disappear, or, or God forbid, if if and if you're thinking this, please please call 988, or you know I'm I'm going to leave this world. Her family is the perfect example of you will be missed and and hopefully their perseverance finds them answers whatever that answer may be And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Crime in the Coalfields. If you have any information uh, regarding the disappearance of Sharice Gwen Stevens, you are urged to contact the Beckley Police Department, State Police. And if you are a member of the family or a friend of Sharice, do not hesitate to reach out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening with a way to contact you. We want to hear your side of the story, and you could be the difference in closing this case. Be sure to stay tuned for any updates to stories of Sharice or any other of the people we've highlighted here on Crime in the Coalfields. Now, if you like Crime in the Coalfields, be sure to give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. It's free and really helps us. And also be sure to recommend it to any friends or fans of true crime that you know. Feel free to send in any suggestions or requests for future episodes to us. We'll do the research and feature whatever cases that you send our way. Interact with us on Spotify or wherever you happen to be listening to reach us the fastest. This episode has been an exclusive podcast experience presented by 59 News, sponsored by Rosen Questenberry Funeral Homes. 
This episode of Crime in the Coalfields was written, hosted, and produced by Izzy Post and Harper Imch.